I invite you this morning to Jeremiah's prophecy in the Old Testament. Jeremiah, the 46th chapter, is the beginning of the text for this morning. We actually are going to cover from a very high angle through the 51st chapter. So yes, fasten your seat belts, tray tables locked away. There are no exits. <laughs> Jeremiah 46, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the nations. And then down to verse 25, Jeremiah 46. The Lord of hosts, the God of Israel said, Behold, I am bringing punishment upon Ammon of Thebes and Pharaoh and Egypt and her gods and her kings. Upon Pharaoh and those who trust in him, I will deliver them into the hand of those who seek their life into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and his officers. Afterward, Egypt shall be inhabited as in the days of old, declares the Lord. Chapter 47, verse 1. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning the Philistines before Pharaoh struck down Gaza. Chapter 48, verse 1. Concerning Moab, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Woe to Nebo, for it is laid waste. Kiriathaim is put to shame, it is taken. The fortress is put to shame and broken down. The renown of Moab is no more. In Heshbon, they plan disaster against her. Come, let us cut her off from being a nation. You also, O madmen, shall be brought to silence. The sword shall pursue you. Then look down to the 47th verse of Jeremiah 48. Yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days, declares the Lord, thus far as the judgment of Moab. Chapter 49, verse 1. Concerning the Ammonites, thus says the Lord, Has Israel no sons? Has he no heir? Why then is Milcom dispossessed, has Milcom dispossessed Gad and his people settled in its cities? Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will cause the battle cry to be heard against Rabbah of the Ammonites. It shall become a desolate mound, and its villages will be burned with fire. Then Israel shall dispossess those who dispossessed him, says the Lord. Verse 6. But afterward I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites, declares the Lord. Jeremiah 49, verse 7. Concerning Edom, thus says the Lord of hosts, Is wisdom no more in Timon? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Has their wisdom vanished? Flee, turn back, dwell in the depths, O inhabitants of Dedan, for I will bring the calamity of Esau upon him, the time when I punish him. Chapter 49, verse 23. 
concerning Damascus. Hamath and Arpad are confounded, for they've heard bad news. They melt in fear. They're troubled like the sea that cannot be quiet. Verse 28 of chapter 49. Concerning Kedar and the kingdoms of Hazor that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, struck down, thus says the Lord, rise up, advance against Kedar, destroy the people of the east. Chapter 49, verse 34. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam in the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will break the bow of Elam, the mainstay of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four quarters of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. Verse 39. But in the latter days, I will restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Chapter 50, verses 1 and 2. The word that the Lord spoke concerning Babylon, concerning the land of the Chaldeans, by Jeremiah the prophet. Declare among the nations and proclaim. Set up a banner and proclaim. Conceal it not and say, Babylon is taken. Bel is put to shame. Merodach is dismayed. Her images are put to shame. Her idols are dismayed. Chapter 51. Verse 41. How Babylon is taken, the praise of the whole earth seized. How Babylon has become a horror among the nations. The sea has come up on Babylon. She is covered with tumultuous waves. Her cities have become a horror. Her land, a land of drought and a desert, a land in which no one dwells and through which no son of man passes. And I will punish Bel in Babylon and take out of his mouth what he has swallowed. The nations shall no longer flow to him. The wall of Babylon has fallen. And then finally, in that 51st chapter, beginning at verse 60, Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that should come upon Babylon, all these words that are written concerning Babylon. And Jeremiah said to Sariah, when you come to Babylon, see that you read all these words and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place that you will cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and cast it into the midst of the Euphrates, and say, Thus shall Babylon seek, sink to rise no more because of the disaster that I'm bringing upon her, and they shall become exhausted. Thus far are the words of Jeremiah, the word of our God. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, that we be hearers and doers. Overcome our reticence, Lord, to hear from you. Triumph over our stubbornness, our arrogance, our indifference. May we see the greatness of our glorious God. For it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Consider with me for a moment the size and influence of some of the current superpowers. 
If you consider America, gross domestic product of 23 plus trillion dollars, a population of 332 million, and a military just under 1.4 million. China, gross domestic product, 17, almost 18 trillion dollars, a population of 1.4 billion with active duty military of 2 million. Russia, GDP, 1.8 trillion more or less, 147 million in population and somewhat over a million active duty military. Now these numbers are actually more than we can quite wrap our minds around to grasp. We throw out terms like million, billion, trillion, like we actually know what we're talking about. And the fact is, when you get beyond million in particular, it starts getting really weird to try to grasp how large those numbers are. It, it kind of comes out like this. Millions, billions, trillions, big, bigger, biggest. What we do grasp is that these superpowers are called super for a reason. It makes us feel rather small and insignificant. We have a certain amount of awe when we consider them. It's hard to truly grasp that in the end, the nations fail. When you think of empires that have come and gone, from our perspective, we see their strengths, their weaknesses. We consider and pontificate about what happened or didn't happen, what could have happened that they would have endured. And certainly time and distance gives us some help in understanding. But boy, it is hard to lay hold of these things when you're in the midst of living it out. Right? I mean, our, our very smallness individually and the narrowness, in a sense, of our own personal worlds, this all can be overwhelming. As believers, the Lord comes to us, deigns to give us perspective on past empires, as well as the means of having perspective on our own time. Anywhere you read in the Old Testament, you see the people of God in relationship to the Lord, but you also see them in relationship to other nations, including what we'd consider the superpowers of the day. Now, sometimes those relationships are articulated on very small, personal scales. Abraham in relationship to Abimelech, or Joseph to Pharaoh, or Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. Other times we see larger scale interactions. In all of them, however, we are shown the Lord's relationship and assessment of the nations. Now, it's been a little while, but if you go back in Jeremiah, you read in chapter 1, verse 5, his calling, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Not just Judah, the nations. And then in the 25th chapter, 
of Jeremiah, the 15th verse. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, said to me, Take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I'm sending against them. Then from the 17th verse there through the 26th, he lists the nations. Now as we come to the end of Jeremiah, having spent several Sundays here, we are seeing this final grouping. I've talked about this. Jeremiah's prophetic ministry covers something like 40 to 45 years. But if you try to read his book chronologically, you're going to be frustrated because it is not a chronological arrangement. It appears to be done in specific groupings. Most likely, it seems to me, Jeremiah and his scribe Baruch are putting the book together. And Jeremiah is saying, okay, put these prophecies here, put these here, group these here. Here is my purpose in doing these things. So we come to this final grouping. Now some of you cheated and looked ahead. There's only one chapter left. Yes, that's next Sunday. Judah has witnessed the might of Assyria first in destroying the northern kingdom of Israel. They are experiencing the power of Babylon that ultimately is going to carry them off into captivity, lay waste the walls of Jerusalem, burn the temple, and depopulate the area. What has to be in their minds? What has to be going through their heads? We're doomed. There's no hope. All these powerful nations around us apparently cannot be destroyed, yet here we are, destroyed. What of the nation? Folks, doesn't this really touch something for us? That we often feel like our world is out of control. And our helplessness, we tend to start reflecting that, well, is the Lord overwhelmed too? I'm certainly overwhelmed. And it seems like with good reason to be overwhelmed. What Jeremiah shows us here is the Lord controls the destinies of nations. Now I'm not going to take you back through all those readings from the beginning. I know and I and thank you for enduring and following with that. But basically what we have are Ten nations that are grouped together here about whom Jeremiah makes prophecy. Now lest you wonder if I'm going to try to do this verse by verse, I hope by now you've figured out I know I can't do that. But I'd have you consider three things. And if you've not read these chapters before today, take some time this week to consider them. First consideration, the nations face God's judgment. The nations face God's judgment. Brother wrote it this way, Michael Wilcock, again and again the God of Israel speaks to other nations besides his own 
through Jonah to the people of Assyria, for example, and through Daniel to the kings of Babylon. And he gives similar messages to other spokesmen besides the writing prophets of the Old Testament. It is not out of character for the God of the Old Testament to speak to other nations that are not his. If we quickly run through the list here to Egypt, Egypt had always been a temptation and a snare for the people of God. They'd come out of Egypt, they knew about the Exodus, but there was something in their thinking as a culture, as a people, that kept them wondering about running back to Egypt for help, especially whenever these northern powers like Assyria and Babylon are on the rise. At least there was a connection to Egypt. Of course, you kind of chuckle, yes, it was the connection of slave to master. And yet they somehow see that as valid. At the time that Jeremiah writes and prophesies, Egypt's experienced something of a resurgence as an ancient world power. But the prophecy in chapter 46 against Egypt is basically two. The first one from the reign of Jehoiakim around 605, Nebuchadnezzar is going to defeat the Egyptians, and he does. The second one from the fall of Jerusalem, Egypt is going to be attacked by Nebuchadnezzar, and they will not stand. Egypt is no rescue. The Philistines, chapter 47. Now, everybody that's paid any attention at a Sunday school or vacation Bible school at all has heard about Philistines. You probably know the most famous or infamous of the Philistines, Goliath, Goliath of Gath. And the Philistines, probably a Phoenician people, a seafaring people, were always a problem for Israel. But there is pronounced upon them this curse. God is going to destroy them. Now, if you look at a map, he has started in Egypt. Now he moves north, and he's in Philistia. The next two have an echo in our hearts, our thoughts, our minds. Moab and Ammon. Now, if you're thinking, now, where have I heard of them before? If you go back to the book of Genesis and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, As Lot finally escapes with his two daughters, his daughters get him drunk, seduce him, and through their father, they have children named Moab and Ammon, the fathers, if you will, of these nations. Lot's descendants through his daughters. And yet, there is some hope for them. Intriguing, we'll touch on this more later. Maybe some remnant of the old faith of Abraham, even in Lot's inadequate version of it, may be awakened in his descendants. Chapter 49, Edom, the descendants of Esau. In chapter 49 at verse 23, Damascus, what we call modern-day Syria, center of commerce and trade. And then we start running into names with which we are far less familiar. Can I give you a little hint? This is the place that a study Bible can save you from absolute confusion. A study Bible and some maps. Now, I know some of you hated geography with every fiber of your being when you were forced to take it in school. Get over it, get out your maps, and look where these are. It'll help you see what the world looked like in ancient Israel. It's, it's actually helpful in biblical interpretation. We're told there about Kedar. Kedar was a nomadic Arabian tribe. Hazor, which was just north of Israel. And then Elam. Elam was an ancient civilization centered in the far west. It was actually southwest of modern-day Iran, stretching from the lowlands of what is now Khuzestan 
and the Elam province, as well as a small part of southern Iraq. This was as far out as you'd go thinking about the world in that day when you're part of the Jewish people. And then of all things, Babylon. Babylon. Now Babylon was the largest city in that vast empire. Founded more than 4,000 years ago as a small port on the Euphrates River, the ruins are located in present-day Iraq. It became one of the most powerful cities of the ancient world under the rule of Hammurabi. Centuries later, a new line of kings established a new or neo-Babylonian empire that spanned from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean. During that time, Babylon becomes this beautiful city of great architecture. The city covered 200 square miles. That's about the size of modern-day Chicago. There were three sets of walls during Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He didn't just build one wall, three. And according to the Greek historian Herodotus, one of those walls was so wide they could have chariot races on top of it. Three major palaces decorated with yellow and blue tile. Many shrines, including one to Marduk, that stood 280 feet tall, about 26 stories tall. The hanging gardens, a colossal maze of terraced trees, shrubs, flowers, man-made waterfalls. They haven't exactly found it yet, but it was sighted. They're not sure if it's actually in the city of Babylon or another. And then the Ishtar Gate, which you can actually see, gave way to the city's processional way, a half-mile decorated corridor used in religious rituals, it was extraordinary. Now in all of that, and folks ponder for a moment, the wealth, the might, the power projected from Babylon. And when you think about it, think about Daniel and three young Hebrews and all the others that find themselves transported there. How overwhelming that had to be. This is for free. That Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego could go to such a place and maintain their faith. Can I encourage you? That ought to give you hope for your own children as they go out into this world. Train them well, teach them well, and trust the Lord. The themes. If you look, and this is the longest part of the prophecy, chapters 50 and 51 are about Babylon. I'm just going to summarize it for you quickly and we'll move on. The violence of Babylon will be avenged. They were a violent people when it came to warfare. The arrogance of Babylon will be brought low. And we see that borne out in Nebuchadnezzar being reduced to thinking he's a cow. The gods of Babylon will be powerless to save them. The land of Babylon will be devastated by enemies from the north. The fall of Babylon will signal the restoration and return of Israel and the fate of Babylon carries with it that cosmic significance. It is intriguing, is it not, that when you get to the New Testament, Babylon shows up again. Mostly in the book of Revelation. In fact, I think virtually exclusively in the book of Revelation, where John uses the language about Babylon to encode, I believe, describe in his own day the Roman Empire. Now pay attention to this prophecy 
Look at the end of that 51st chapter. When you look there at the 59th verse, we're given this little extra instruction, a dramatization, if you will. Jeremiah tells, tells Soriah, the son of Neriah, the son of Messiah, when he went with Zedekiah, king of Judah, to Babylon, the fourth year of his reign, Sarai was quartermaster. Jeremiah wrote in a book all the disaster that had come on Babylon. And he tells Sarai, when you get there, you read all the words of this prophecy and include this and say, O Lord, you have said concerning this place, this is verse 62, fifth, chapter 51, that you'll cut it off so that nothing shall dwell in it, neither man nor beast, and it shall be desolate forever. When you finish reading this book, tie a stone to it and throw it into the middle of the Euphrates River. Now, I'm not great at physics, but I think when you tie a big rock to a book and throw it in the water, there's only one outcome. Just seeing if you're here. What happens? It sinks. Thank you. Some of you are still with me. Bless you. While Judah finds itself in captivity, the Lord's promise is that their captors are just as much under the Lord's dominion as they are. Babylon, that is so mighty, that is run over everybody, they're going to sink. And they're going to sink in a matter of decades. That was beyond Jewish thought and reckoning as they go into captivity. Seventy years and Babylon's done? Yes. My friend, never lose sight of this. The nations face the judgment of God. Further, secondly... The nations may also receive the mercy of God. Now, when you read these chapters, you find all this stuff about judgment. And I mean, it's overwhelming, and it's descriptive, and it's detailed in many places. Some are short, some are long. The stuff on Babylon is extraordinarily long. But as you read it, in four places, we're given a little glimpse of mercy about Egypt chapter 46 verse 26 afterward Egypt shall be inhabited as in days of old declares the Lord about Moab chapter 48 verse 47 yet I will restore the fortunes of Moab in the latter days declares the Lord chapter 49 verse 6 but afterward I'll restore the fortunes of the Ammonites declares the Lord chapter 49 but in the latter days, I'll restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Now here comes the question, right? Out of the ten cities, countries, groups that he pronounces judgment on, why does he give any hope to four of them? You ready? I will have mercy 
upon whom I will have mercy. And I will pardon whom I will pardon. My friends, please pay attention to this. The Lord does not answer to us. There are things he does for his own purpose and his own glory. And we should humble ourselves under his hand. Now, this isn't just a message of judgment. It is a message of mercy. There's a message of hope. This is true in the rest of Scripture. I haven't time to go into all of it. But consider for a moment this Old Testament hope that's offered. The, the glorious, wondrous story of, of Jonah, right? And folks, yes, I believe in Jonah. I believe in Nineveh. It was there. And I believe in the great fish that the Lord prepared. I, I, I remember folks said, oh, can, can a fish actually swallow somebody? Well, here's what I'll tell you. My God is big enough, to quote Adrian Rogers, he can make a fish big enough for three bedrooms, two baths, a living room, and a fireplace. Now when I read that story of Jonah, if you're not careful, you catch the wrong stuff. The crux of the story is found in the third and fourth chapters. First, a shocker. Nineveh repents. That's not supposed to happen. They're a bunch of pagan Gentiles. How dare they repent? Oh, by the way, that's Jonah's mindset. Because the other part of the story is Jonah's mad. You know what I said to him? You just knew it. Go preach judgment and they repent and you're a merciful God and you're going to let them live and I want them all to die. Wow. What arrogance. And yet God showed mercy. You see it in the book of Isaiah chapter 2. Verse 2, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the hills and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord for the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways and we may walk in his paths. Hmm. It's also seen as a New Testament reality. Judgment, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats. Right? Evangelism, Matthew 28. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age, to the expansion of the kingdom, even in the first century. Romans chapter 1, verse 4. As Paul writes to these Christians in Rome whom he's never seen, speaking of Jesus, he will say, Romans 1, 4, he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we've received grace and apostleship. Now listen, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name, among all the nations. Among all 
the nations, including you, who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Church, do you recognize that the Lord shows mercy and grace to the nations? Oh, my friend, you are the recipient of that. Please do not fall into the terrible, horrible trap of equating somehow America with Old Testament Israel. That's not just an interpretive mistake, a category mistake. It's a mistake that will lead you to bad, bad places. It'll mess up all your understanding of the text of Scripture. We're not Israel. We are the results of the mission to the Gentiles. And the Lord continues to carry that work out among the nations. Is that not why we have sent missionaries to places? What is it that inspired Judson to go? William Carey. What is it that sent Peyton to the Hebrides? What is it that has people throughout the history of the Christian church willing to go to places and die because the gospel is for the nations. So not only does the Lord judge the nations, the Lord shows mercy to the nations. And finally, the nations cannot destroy the kingdom. The nations cannot destroy the kingdom. Scattered throughout these judgments that Jeremiah articulates here, judgments on the nations, there's a subtext, a scarlet thread, if you will, of the salvation of God's people. If you still have Jeremiah there where you can see it, look at chapter 46 at verse 27. Jeremiah 46, 27. But fear not, O Jacob, my servant, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, for I am with you. I'll make a full end of all the nations to which I have driven you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I'll by no means leave you unpunished. But what is the word? Fear not. Chapter 50, at verse 17, 18, 19. Look at that 19th verse. I will restore Israel to his pasture, and he shall feed on Carmel and in Bashan, and his desire will be satisfied on the hills of Ephraim and Gilead. Chapter 50, at verse 33. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people of Israel are oppressed, and the people of Judah with them, and all who took them captive have held them fast. They refuse to let them go. Look at verse 34. Their Redeemer is strong. The Lord of hosts is His name. He will surely plead their cause that they may give rest to the earth but unrest to the inhabitants of Babylon. And then in the 51st chapter, verse 5. For Israel and Judah have not been forsaken. Now, we have the benefit of looking back at all of this through the fulfillment of the terms of the New Covenant. We're the ones who have gotten to witness that the ultimate end, the focus, if you will, of all this prophetic work 
turns out not to be so much for national Judah and Israel as it does the one true Son of God, Jesus Christ our Lord. In Him, all the hopes for a Son of God who will practice the ways of God and stay in covenant with God find their fulfillment. And through Him, the rest of us among the Gentile nations are then brought into that kingdom through Him. But the work is international and it is also transnational. That is, it takes us to a new kingdom. You do get this, right? Christian, you're the citizen of the Lord's kingdom. Jesus is your king. Now, I know the history of the world has not made monarchy look too good. But the fact is the history of the world has shown us the limits of all kinds of government. This is one true monarchy that's as good for our souls and is done for our benefit. And it is for the nations. You see, my hope brothers and sisters, is over the course of the church's life and ministry that we would see people concerned enough for the nations to go. And not only to go, but those who can't go, concerned enough for the nations to help others go. Because there are people in this world who have never heard of Jesus. Why would we do that? Because the kingdom is bigger than our country. The kingdom is bigger than Western civilization. The kingdom is more than any nation or empire that has ever lived or ever will live. This is our future hope. The day is coming, no matter what your millennial persuasion. I'll throw that in. Whatever your view of end times as long as it falls within the pale of orthodoxy. The Lord is going to save a multitude from all the nations. Revelation 21, verse 23. And the city has no need of the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. But nothing unclean will ever enter it nor anyone who does what is detestable or false but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Christian, let me, get, let, let me say this. Uh, that's big. Uh, that's, that's big picture. Yeah, it is. Let me see if I can make it a little smaller for you. Don't want to lose the big, but I want to make it. You know you've got brothers and sisters you haven't met. You have family you don't know yet. Not like that third cousin that's weird and you don't want to be around. Right? I'm, you, you've got, you have brothers and sisters. You have brothers and sisters you can't talk with because you don't speak the same language. 
You have brothers and sisters that died several hundred years ago that you're yet going to get to meet. There are brothers and sisters alive in this world who are worshiping the Lord today and you couldn't have a conversation with them and you wouldn't understand one another. But you do understand this, Jesus. The day comes when the curse of Babel is undone. The day comes when all the people of God through all the nations are brought together as we should be under one King, Jesus our Lord. The Lord does this through judgment because He is sovereign. Oh, Christian, hold on to that. I know it, it, it is felt as weird politically and sociologically in the last few years as any time in this old man's life. This has been peculiar. I, I do mean peculiar. But I am here to tell you, my friend, the kingdom endures. The kingdom is never shaken. And our family shall one day all be gathered to our Father and our King and Savior. And He already is present with all of His people through His Spirit. And for that, we should give great thanks and have great joy. May the Lord bless his word to encourage our hearts this day. Let's pray. Father, we often need to be reminded when it seems that the world is out of control, When it seems like madness, intellectually, emotionally, morally, madness seems to reign. Our Father, may we lift our eyes and know that our God reigns. You bring kings to power, rulers to power, and you depose them. You cause nations to rise up in might and exist for a time, and then you bring them to an end. All for your own purpose in the work of salvation you are doing. May we know, Lord, that while the world often seems chaotic, that behind that mess is plan and eternal purpose, and all things are working out for our good, according to your will. Father, may we lift our eyes to see fields white for harvest. May we rejoice to know the kingdom is in this whole world. May we go and seek those whom you have set apart to preach the gospel that they come to saving faith. And may we live faithfully no matter what it costs us, Lord. May we live faithfully as citizens of heaven, strangers in this world. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen.